for the choir director, according to Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you, and they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Father, as we open your word, we pray now that you help us. Help us to see it rightly. Help us to see what's here. Help us to understand what you are saying and what you're saying to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure all of you are aware of uh, all that's gone on, both with the, the death of Michael Jackson and, and everything that has followed it all the way up until his funeral yesterday. And whatever you think of Michael Jackson, uh, you have to admit this is an amazing cultural phenomenon. Millions upon millions of people are singing his praises in the last two weeks, literally and figuratively on blogs, on message boards, on Twitter, on the front page of nearly every newspaper in the entire world, his picture was placed when he died a few days ago. Celebrities have been lining up both in the media and yesterday at his funeral to speak of him, to sing for him, to sing about him, to sing his songs and so on. There's been so much interest in Michael Jackson since the day he died that even Google froze up. If you typed in Michael Jackson into their search bar, you would get nothing in the hours after he died because Michael Jackson apparently is even bigger than Google. And Google is bigger than everyone, uh, it seems, almost. So much attention has been given to the quote-unquote king of pop. And as we turn to a psalm that is about a different kind of king, we have to say that such 
is always the attention that is paid when people have crowned someone king. Whether it's literally with a crown or just in their own hearts. When someone is made out to be king, when someone is made out to be the greatest of the great, people are always eager, verse 1, to address their verses to the king. To sing to him, to sing about him, to speak about him, to write about him. Their tongues are always like the pen of a ready writer. And such it has been the last week, both with people who write and people who speak and people who sing and people who just surf the internet. Everyone is talking about the man that they deem to be a kind of king. And if Psalm 45 is any indication, not a lot has changed in 3,000 years. This psalm, it's entitled A Song of Love, and it's addressed to the king there in verse 1. And probably what's going on as you read through the psalm is this is a song that was composed by one of the sons of Korah for the king's wedding, for one of the kings of God's people's wedding. Probably that specific king, if you just cross-reference all the details that are in the psalm with the books of Kings and Chronicles, probably the king that this song was written for was the king named Joram who was the son of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's probably a little more well-known. Well, he had a son named Joram who married a girl from Tyre. And it would seem as you compare things that this song was written for that king. And that king, like many of the celebrities that have gone from this world in the last few weeks, had his issues. And yet, Joram, though he had his issues, was the king. And because he was the king deemed by the people and coming in the line of David, the psalmist was more than ready to compose a wedding song for him, a wedding ballad for him in verse 1. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The psalmist was ready to sing for the king. Just as people are today, whether it's the king of pop or the king of England or whoever it may be. And the people surely were more than ready to join in, to overlook the faults of this young man who was getting married and who was newly crowned as king, and to join in the praise. Such is the treatment, both modern and ancient, of kings. But we're also going to notice this evening that while this psalm was composed and apparently sung at Joram's wedding... The psalmist was ultimately not simply writing this for Joram or about Joram. He's looking beyond this young king to a greater king who will come. And we'll see that because the psalm sounds, indeed the psalm is, idealistic. You read this and you say, how could this be possible of Joram or anyone else? Well, It is idealistic, but it's possible because this is not a glamorization of Joram. This is not the king trying to make Joram out to be better than he was. Rather, this is the king looking ahead to that which Joram and his title symbolized. This is the king looking, or excuse me, the psalmist looking ahead to the promised Messiah who would come through Joram's line to the perfect king, to one who would actually measure up to the high praise that's offered in this psalm. He's looking forward to the great and final son of David, hoping that Joram will approximate to him, but not writing this psalm simply for Joram, 
or about Joram. Both the psalmist and the writers of the New Testament make it clear that Psalm 45 is not ultimately about Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, though it does refer to him in many ways, but that ultimately this psalm is about the great and final king in the line of David, the Messiah, Jesus. See if you don't notice that as we go along. And as we go along, we're going to look at this psalm in five stanzas. Five verses, not five Bible verses, but if it's a song, you imagine five verses in your mind or five stanzas to the song that the psalmist is writing. The first, in verse 2, you could call the king's wisdom. The king's wisdom. The psalmist begins by praising the king's good looks in 2a, you are fairer than the sons of men. And then he goes on and says, grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. And I say this is about the king's wisdom. He does praise the king's good looks in verse 2a, and it's possible that verse 2b is just continuing that same theme. It's possible that the psalmist is saying, you're fairer than the sons of men, and boy, your lips are pretty. And therefore God has blessed you forever. And he may be saying that. But it's more likely, it seems to me, that after noting the wonder of the king's looks, the psalmist then in the end of verse 2 begins praising the wisdom of the king's lips. Grace, he says, is poured upon or poured through, your version may say, the king's lips. Grace is poured upon your lips. Probably that's a reference to his speech that God had blessed him with a wise tongue. Or at least that the psalmist hopes that God will bless him with a wise tongue. And as we read about Joram in the rest of the Bible, we realize that perhaps it was just a hope and a prayer. But all people hope this for their king, that there's grace on his lips, that he speaks well, that he has a wise tongue. Even if they themselves don't want to be wise and they themselves don't want to do things the right way. They want their leaders to and they're more than willing to criticize them when they don't. All people want grace to be on the king's lips so that he makes wise decisions and comes to right conclusions and gives sound counsel and gives fair judgments. And Israel was no different than we are, especially given their history. Their history included the wisest king who had ever to this point lived, Solomon was called in his day the wisest man on the earth. And it's illustrated in a number of ways, most strikingly by the fact that two harlots came to Solomon. Each of them had a baby. One of them rolled over on the baby in the night, and the baby died. And they both came arguing over which woman was the real mother of the live baby. One woman said, it's my baby, and she rolled over on hers. And the other woman said, no, it's my baby, and she rolled over on hers. And there was no way to tell the answer unless you had an exceedingly wise man in the room, and Solomon was, and so he said, let's cut the baby in two. And all of a sudden, of course, the real mother says, no, 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 don't do that. Just give her the baby, but whatever you do, don't cut him in two. And he says, this is the woman. That was in the Israelites' history. They expected their kings to be wise after the manner of Solomon. And the psalmist is here longing that this young king will be like his great-great-great-great-grandfather Solomon. But he wasn't. In fact, none of the kings were perfectly wise. Even Solomon, in his old age, or even in his middle age, 
admits in the book of Ecclesiastes that he became a fool. The wisest man in the world became a fool. None of the kings of Israel actually measured up to what the psalmist is longing for in verse 2, that grace would be poured on their lips. But the hope of Psalm 45-2 for a truly wise king was eventually fulfilled, wasn't it? In Jesus. He is wisdom personified. He is the answer to the psalmist's longing and to the people's longing for a king who would truly be wise. He, according to Luke 4.22, spoke in such a way that the people were amazed at, quote, the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Does that sound familiar? Grace is poured out upon your lips. Luke 4.22, gracious words were falling from his lips. Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul tells us that Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In John 8.16, Jesus reminds us that His judgments are always true. He's the wise King that the people were longing for. He is the one who had grace poured out upon His lips perfectly. And what great hope there is in that for us. That we can always go to Jesus to find wisdom and truth. Even if our leaders are as foolish as Joram turned out to be. We have Jesus. You have questions unanswered in your life or decisions that you need to make or dilemmas that you face. Isn't it good to know that you don't have to guess or that you don't have to go to some wicked person for the answer or that you don't have to open up the horoscope and find out what it says for today or that you don't have to DVR Dr. Phil and watch it after dinner at night to find out what you should do with your life? No. We have a king upon whose lips grace is poured out. A king who always speaks rightly and wisely. The king's wisdom ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. The second verse of the song, in verses 3 through 5, you might call the king's might. The king's might. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Israel hoped for a wise king. Israel hoped always for a king with military might. And certainly that's what the psalmist is expressing here again in regard to the young king Joram. That God would give him a mighty sword in verse 3. That God would make his right hand powerful in verse 4. That God would help him ride victoriously on his steed in verse 4. That God would let his arrows hit their mark in verse 5. That God would make this man every bit the powerful military commander who would protect his people. This is the hope for this king and for every king in every generation. But the reality was always a mixed bag. Some of the kings of God's people were mighty. Others not so much. Some of the ones who were mighty in their younger years stopped trusting God and became very weak when they got old. You read the history of Israel and great victories seem always to be followed by crushing defeats. 
And even when there were victories, those victories weren't always achieved according to verse 4b. In other words, the kings of Israel didn't always win their battles for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Sometimes they won their battles for the causes of falsehood and pride and sin. And so the hope of verses 3 through 5 was never fully realized. Not in Joram, not in David, not in Solomon, not in Jehoshaphat, not in any of the kings that we know in the Old Testament. However, the hope of a mighty military king, the Bible says, will be realized someday in Jesus. Listen as I read to you from Revelation chapter 19. You can turn there if you like, but keep your finger in Psalm 45 or just listen along. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of of lords. You see any similarities between Revelation 19 and Psalm 45? The king on a horse with a sword and the people's falling under him. It's all there. And verse 4b is there as well. The king that the psalmist was hoping for would be one who fought, but who didn't just fight, but who fought specifically for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And we read about Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 that, quote, in righteousness he wages war and his name is called faithful and true. Truth, righteousness, meekness, they are all there in Jesus and will be there when he comes. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 45, 3 through 5. And not only will these verses be fulfilled in Jesus, but they already are being fulfilled. For someday Jesus will come with a sword and a horse executing vengeance. But even now, even now he is overcoming God's enemies with a different kind of sword. Even now Jesus is overcoming God's enemies with the sword of the Spirit. Or as we sing sometimes, the sword that makes the wounded whole. And the amazing thing about it is that the Bible says that we were the enemies. And God in His mercy aimed the arrows of the Gospel, the sword of the Spirit, at our hearts. And those arrows struck us not like the arrows of a vengeful king, but like the arrows of Cupid, making us drunk with Jesus' love, making us no longer enemies of God, but friends. And I just ask you, as we think about the might of the king, has the king's, have the king's arrows sunk into your heart? Have they really? Are you drunk with his love? Now, I'm not asking if, if in your might you have attempted to come over to him. 
though you must come over to him in faith. But I'm asking more than that if in his might he has overcome you, if he has conquered you, if he has dominated you, so that when you think about your relationship with him, it's what he did in you. And that you couldn't help now but love him because of what he has done in you and for you. The king's might is the power of the gospel that overcomes our sin. Thirdly, the psalmist sings about the king's character. The king's character, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Again, the psalmist is longing for something. He's been longing for a wise king, for a mighty king. Now he's longing for a good king, an upright king. One, verse 6b, who will rule with righteousness. His scepter is an image of his rule. His scepter is a scepter of uprightness. He wants a king who will rule with righteousness. But also in verse 7a, he wants a king who will also love righteousness. Not just a king who does what's right because it's expedient or it's expected, but because he loves righteousness. And as the king rules that way, the psalmist goes on to say that God will anoint him with the oil of joy. God will make him the happiest man on the earth and that joy will trickle down to his people. Upright leaders make for happy people. That's important. Policy is important. Uprightness is important. Remember that when it comes around to thinking about who your leaders are here and out there. But again, the psalmist's hope for an upright leader who would bring joy to the people was never fully realized. Certainly wasn't realized in Joram. In the book of Kings, we only have two or three verses on Joram and the the simple fact uh, about his life is, quote, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not much else to say about him. But the king's, the psalmist's hope for an upright, a good king who would consistently rule in righteousness wasn't even realized in Jehoshaphat, Joram's much more famous and much more godly father. For on the one hand, early in Jehoshaphat's life, it is said that he, quote, took great pride in the ways of the Lord. And yet on the other hand, later in his life, He allied himself with the wicked Ahab so that the Bible says God destroyed his works. And as you read about these kings of Israel and in Judah, this is a pattern, it seems. They either start out bad and continue that way, with a few exceptions, and then many of them start out well. And then when they become strong or when they become older or when they face a peculiar challenge, they turn away from God and seek other solutions. And the psalmist's hope for an upright, righteous king wasn't even realized fully in David, was it? David was a man after God's own heart. David was the best earthly human king that we could ever think of or imagine. And yet, David's sin with Bathsheba and David's pride in numbering the people towards the end of his life both became a curse to the nation. And his lack of uprightness brought the opposite of joy To the people. And so the hope for a truly upright, righteous, consistently godly king kept falling flat. 
in the Old Testament. But was it a forlorn hope? Well, clearly by this point in the sermon, you realize the answer is no. Because ultimately, the psalmist's prayers and hopes aren't answered in any merely human king. Ultimately, Jesus is the king the psalmist was looking for. Was he upright? Of course he was. Did he love righteousness? Of course he did. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Contrary to the way the kings in Israel were often called bad shepherds who led the people astray, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Contrary to the way kings and leaders today and each one of us often seeks our own interests without even realizing we're doing it, Jesus, one of his most famous quotes was, Not my will, but yours be done. He loved righteousness. He loved to do God's will. Jesus is, once again, the fulfillment of the psalmist's hopes. And in verse 6, we can see that the psalmist understood that that had to be the case. The psalmist isn't living under any illusions here, and I want you to see that in verse 6. Did you notice, as we read through the psalm, that while the psalmist addresses the king in verses 1 through 5, and then he clearly again addresses the king In verses 6b through 9, in verse 6a, he seems to pause instead of speaking to the king as he's been doing and as he's going to be doing. In verse 6a, he pauses and speaks to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in the end of verse 6 and going on through verse 7, he switches back and addresses the king. Again, talking to the scepter and his loving righteousness and God's blessing of him and so on. He addresses God in 6a, and then he goes back and addresses the king. Why does he do that? Is it just kind of a pause here, a quick prayer that he sends up to heaven? Why does he do this? Well, according to Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, which quotes verses 6 and 7, both 6a and 6b through 7 are about the same person. Hebrews quotes these two verses and says, he's not talking about two different people. This is one guy here. God, 6a, and also the king, 6b through 7. In other words, the psalmist understood that any king who would actually truly walk in uprightness, any king who would truly and unstintingly love righteousness would have to be God himself. And the psalmist gives us a hint in verse 6 that he realizes that though this psalm is partially for Joram, it's really about God, the king. The psalmist understood that ultimately David had not been the fulfillment of this psalm, neither had Solomon or Jehoshaphat, neither would the young king Joram be. If any king were ever to reign with a scepter of uprightness in his hand, God himself would have to come as the Messiah and reign among his people. And again, according to Hebrews chapter 1, he has done that in the person of Jesus, who is both the God whose throne is forever and ever and the human king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. The psalmist knew that Jesus was the king. He didn't know his name. He didn't know the circumstances, but he knew that God himself would have to come and be this king that he was longing for. And there's an important lesson here as a side note that no matter what we're looking for in other people, 
Ultimately, God is the fulfillment of all of our needs. Therefore, we should never pin our ultimate hopes on a mere man or woman, whether it's a leader, whether it's a leader in the church or a leader in the nation, whether it's your spouse or your children or your parents. All of us have feet of clay, don't we? James says we all stumble in many ways, and therefore no mere human can ever meet your need of being a perfect example or an unfailing friend or an upright ruler who never makes mistakes and never sins. Men may approximate to Psalm 45, 6, and 7. Indeed, men and women should want to be upright and righteous. We should approximate to this. But while we may approximate to it, only Jesus can actually fulfill it. And that's the interesting thing about all the hoopla surrounding these celebrities who have died in recent days. It draws us all in. And one reason it draws us all in because, is because whether that particular celebrity was the one we were looking to or not, we're so used to looking to famous people to live out our dreams for us. Whether we even realize it or not. That's why so many people were so upset about Michael Jackson, a man they never knew. That's why people are on the internet arguing about whether or not he really, at the end of his life, became a Christian or not. Not because they really care about Michael Jackson the person or cared enough to share the gospel with him when he was alive, but because he's such a hero in their minds that they have to keep him on that pedestal. And the reason why we do that, not just with him, but with other people in our lives, and all of us tend to it, is because we forget that as important as other people may be, as much as they may point us to God or help us, or be an example to us, none of them ultimately is the King. Only Jesus can be all things to us. That's the King's character. He is perfect in every way, and we should look only to Him. Fourthly, the King's splendor. The King's splendor. First in verses 8 and 9, All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of ivory palaces stringed instruments that made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And then skip down to verses 13 and following. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you, and they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. The king's splendor or majesty. There's a certain regality that people expect from their monarchs. That's why you don't see Queen Elizabeth in her sweatpants eating a Big Mac, right? would never be allowed to happen. No. Kings and queens are in palaces, verse 8. They are surrounded by important people in verse 9. And then beginning in verse 13, we have a description of the king's daughter, not King Joram, but the king's daughter whom he's marrying. The woman he married was also a king's daughter, the daughter of the king of Tyre. And she is now walking down the aisle at her wedding. And look how she's dressed. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She's led to the king in embroidered work. She has these virgins, her companions, her bridesmaids, 
coming with her. And they're all rejoicing. And the wedding is taking place not in a little chapel in Las Vegas, but in a palace. That's the way it works if you're a king. Your wedding is the biggest deal in the world. Some of you remember the wedding between Charles and Diana. And that's how it works for royal people. And naturally, this is what the psalmist hoped for, for young Joram. That his life would be a life fit for a king. And that's what all the Israelites hoped for their kings. That their kings would be regal. That they would be majestic in their pomp. That they would have palaces and garments and weddings. And then in verses 16 and 17, children who are fit for a king. Sons who would be fit to reign on the throne. They wanted their leaders to represent them in the best way. To be royal in every way possible. And yet again, their hopes were never fully realized. For a season, Solomon lived in the splendor and in the majesty and in the regality that we find described here in Psalm 45 for a season. But within one generation of Solomon's death, the kingdom that he had worked so hard to build and make majestic was torn in two. And over time, the glory of that kingdom, the southern kingdom, which maintained Solomon's line of sons as their kings, decayed and began to fade. The temple began to fall apart. Eventually it was closed and had to be reopened and then it was falling apart again. Jerusalem was ransacked over and over again with various gold and silver things being taken away from it. The people were eventually carried from it into exile and Jerusalem, according to the prophets, became a haunt for jackals. It became almost a ghost town. It became a wilderness, this great prestigious city. And so... Again, what the psalmist is longing for and singing about in regard to King Joram actually never really came true. But, again, remember the psalmist is looking beyond Joram, beyond his sons, beyond the nation of Israel, beyond the city of Jerusalem. And doesn't the New Testament describe toward the very end a city fit for a king? Doesn't the New Testament describe an entourage fit for a king? where the praise is never ending and where the glory never fades and where countless worshipers will share one song and cries of worthy will honor the Lamb. The desires of the psalmist's heart will indeed be granted. Not in Joram, not in Jehoshaphat, not in Solomon, but in Jesus. Let me read to you one more time from the book of Revelation, this time from chapter 21. A little bit longer passage than I read to you a moment ago. Revelation 21, 10 and following. And he carried me away. This is John, the disciple writing. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Then skip down through the description of the walls of the city with emerald and jasper and 
all of these precious stones. Skip down to verse 22. I saw no temple in it, the city that is, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will do it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the arms into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Doesn't that sound a bit like Psalm 45? People debate whether or not that description of the New Jerusalem is an actual physical city or whether it's symbolic of heaven or symbolic of the church. But in any case, the description is splendor and majesty and wonder. A place fit for a king. With a capital K. With other kings, it says, kings of the earth, small k, coming into the city, and even they bow down to this king. And that's what it says in verses 8 and 9, isn't it? That noble people are coming and are among the king's attendants. The king's splendor will be realized in Jesus and in eternity. And finally, in this psalm, we have the king's invitation. The king's invitation, verses 10 through 12. Listen, O daughter. Give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Now I want you to remember as we look at verses 10 through 12 that this is a wedding song. And most of the verses are addressed to the groom, the king, Joram. But in verses 10 through 12 the psalmist pauses and addresses the bride. And this is the invitation or the proposal, as it were, to the bride. Forget your people and your father's house, verse 10b. Joram's wife, her name was Athaliah, was a daughter of the king of Tyre, which was a pagan nation next door to Israel. She was a pagan princess. And that's why the psalmist says, forget your people and your father's house. The invitation is for her to leave that behind, to leave behind the idols she worshipped entire, to leave behind the morals that she learned entire, to leave behind the people who would drag her down entire, and to come, verse 11, and bow down to the king of Israel. Come and submit to his ways. Come and be part of his family. Come and worship his God. That's the invitation. Live on the old way and part of the people. And you'll be guided by his wisdom, verse 2. You'll be protected by his might in verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. You'll be taught by his uprightness in verses 6 and 7. You'll be wrapped in his splendor, verses 8 and 9, and following. And you will be loved by him forever. Leave your pagan idols and come be a part of the people of God and come under the protection of God's king. Small k. And if you would bow down to the king, says the psalmist, other people will follow you. That's the point of verse 12. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Queen, 
Remember, this bride herself was from Tyre. And so what the psalmist is saying when he says the daughter of Tyre will come and the rich among the people will seek your favor, what the psalmist is saying is your sisters are going to follow you and your neighbors are going to follow you. Your countrymen are going to follow you. Noble people will follow you in coming and being a part of the kingdom of this king, of the kingdom of God's people. People will follow you if you leave your father's house and turn from those ways and come and bow down to the king. And I'm simply asking in closing, Isn't the same invitation made to us? Forget your people and your father's house. We, like Athaliah, were not born into God's family, were we? We were born in a different kingdom. We were born in the kingdom of darkness. We were born sinners. And the invitation to us is the same as it was to this young bride. Leave the old ways behind. Forget those old ways. Forget the idols that you're now worshiping. Forget the feudal way of life handed down by your fathers. Forget the morals that you have learned growing up. Repent of your sin and come and bow down to the king. Verse 11. Not Joram, but Jesus. Come and submit to his ways. Come and be part of his family. Come and worship him as God. And then the king will desire your beauty. Then, in other words, you will be the bride of the king. And he will guide you with his wisdom. And he will protect you with his might. And he will teach you his righteousness. And he will wrap you in his splendor. And he will love you forever. And looking back from the New Testament, we also might add, and he would forgive your sins. Turn from your old ways and come and bow down to the King with a capital K, Jesus. And, says the psalmist, if you would come bow down to the King, verse 12, others would follow you. The people in your own personal tire, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, your co-workers, the guys that you used to hang out with and sin with, you come to the king and truly bow down to him and some of them will eventually come and bring a gift to him as well. That's the king's invitation tonight. Leave the old ways and come and bow down to the king. Some of you have already answered the invitation and some of you need to. Perhaps... There are one or two or three or four or perhaps more of us in the room tonight who are in church on Sunday and Wednesday, but we're entire the rest of the week living the old ways. And if that's you, tonight could be your wedding night. Listen, O daughter or O son, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him.